Welcome to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, Executive Director of Citizen Action of Wisconsin. I am sorry to report that our usual host, Matt Brusky, is under the weather and there's a uh, flu going through his household. Don't worry, not COVID, but uh, he, you know, he, he is in some discomfort and uh, was unable to, uh, to make it this morning, though he tried very hard. So it's just myself and our Usual panelists are Healthcare for All Director at Citizen Action Wisconsin, Claire Zoutke. So good morning, Claire. Good morning, Robert. Good to see you. So speaking of COVID, uh, we don't think the Brusky household has COVID, but a lot of people do in this state. So we have Governor Evers asking for outside help because the hospital ICU beds are filling up. And uh, we are only the beginning of winter, Claire. I mean, this is a new Delta surge is just ramping up. We're about to hit the, the major holidays. Uh, and uh, and we, the Omicron variant uh, looms as potentially being worse and more, more contagious for certain. So, Claire, uh, what is going on with, uh, with the, 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 the rising caseload and the governor's uh, call, for, call for reinforcements from the federal government? Yeah, this was a, a big news story that broke this week, which is that uh, Governor Evers reached out to the Biden administration to ask for help from FEMA workers to um, support the long-term care facilities and healthcare facilities like hospitals in their uh, fight to support COVID patients uh, or in long-term care facilities cases, right, to just support the residents of their facilities um, because of the ongoing and significant staffing shortages. And I, I mean, I think that we can all understand why there might be staffing shortages in care facilities and hospitals, right? I mean, Think about being a nurse in a hospital, you know, you're in your second year of dealing with this pandemic. People continue to behave um, in ways that keep the pandemic going. So you don't really see an end in sight. You're tired. You're probably sick, um, have got maybe more than once. It's It's got to be really draining. Um, and so I can see why, why people would be seeking positions uh, outside of these facilities, outside of hospitals where COVID is wreaking havoc. Um, so, yeah, so one of uh, one of Governor Evers sort of tools, tactics, apparently, for trying to address this issue is asking uh, the Biden administration for 100 federal health care workers um, and, and using the Wisconsin National Guard's uh, nurses. So it's it's really becoming um, a, a problem, apparently. My take is, obviously, this is necessary, but the IC unit, units are filling up just the number of beds in addition to the staffing problem. And that doesn't just endanger COVID patients. We have ICUs for a reason for a whole other thing to happen to people. So people are going to be have their health jeopardized, our aunts and uncles and grandparents uh, and other people, young people who have to go to ICU sometimes too, because of the ongoing pandemic. And I would say that this is very human made. I want to, my, my belief is, is that uh, Governor Evers is necessarily trying to up capacity, but it is like putting your finger in the dike if we don't reduce the overall supply, so to speak, the number of people getting very serious COVID. And that has to do with vaccinations because 
virtually everyone who ends up um, in intensive care in the hospital is unvaccinated. And it has to do with uh, public health measures that are increasingly being ignored as we uh, as we begin to come up on two full years of the pandemic. So, Claire, what is your take on what we really have to do in order to in order to address this, especially as we uh, we're only beginning winter and another variant is on the horizon, one that maybe seems to be, according to the, the current evidence, much more contagious. Yeah, so to put some numbers behind what you're talking about, Robert, I pulled up the state of Wisconsin DHS Department of Health Services uh, website and looked at their tracker of what hospital capacity looks like in Wisconsin right now. And um, in in our state, 93% of hospital beds are in use and 96.7, so if you round up, 97% of the state's ICU beds are in use. Um, and that's that's scary, right? And remember, that's a statewide average, which means that there are by, you know, almost by definition, there are lots of places in the state where every single ICU bed is is occupied. And so not only does that mean problems for people who uh, have severe COVID symptoms and need to go to the hospital and there aren't beds for them, but it also means that there aren't beds for, like you say, people who have heart attacks, right? People who get into serious car injuries. And we're heading into winter in Wisconsin when car accidents um, and serious accidents can really pick up because of icy road conditions and snow, right? So um, it is really, uh, it is really scary and it's really a problem um, that that we're heading into um, in in this next sort of phase of COVID. Um, but you're and, right, you're you right. Know, it's Go human ahead. made, it seems to me, Claire, right? Yeah. In other words, humans need to get vaccinated and people need to stop putting out disinformation. Um, and I, when I say it's human made, I mean people not doing what they need to do, get vaccinated, take the public health precautions that have been advised by the Center for Disease Control for a long time. I do not mean what Tucker Carlson had on Fox News Wednesday night, which was Glenn Beck, the former Fox host, uh, claiming some conspiracy by Anthony Fauci to create COVID-19 with the Wuhan lab in China. That is what's going on the most popular cable news talk show in the country, utter disinformation. I mean, the people who are not getting vaccinated. So Claire, do you feel like the, the, the ultimate culprit to the people who are making this partisan, but do you feel like uh, the Democrats are doing enough to address this? And I don't think anyone is doing enough to address the pandemic. And I, I think that's Democrats and Republicans alike. And look, I know that we're in Wisconsin where, uh, you know, we have this this partisan gridlock that we're dealing with, right, where the legislature is so heavily Republican and the governor's mansion is Democratic. And so it's uh, it's a constant power struggle and really hard to to get them together on something. So, uh, is, you know, so I I'm recognizing, admitting that it's easier said than done, right? But uh, but on a national level, even right, like it it just feels like there is so much more that we could be doing, and folks are um, from both parties tend to fight it. I, I mean, there was just this news article recently about the Senate um, 
which must have included at least a few Democrats, right? Because um, Democrats have a very slim majority in the Senate um, voting to oppose some of the Biden administration's vaccine uh, mandates. And so it's just, it just feels like sometimes I feel really down, right? Um, that folks aren't willing to do more to um, to combat the unvaccinated holdouts and um, but there's also other things that we could be doing right um so like i'm thinking about masking right so um which has been proven to be incredibly effective at stopping the spread of um the virus and the fact that um democrats and i want to take a step back so i think we can talk about democrats who are elected officials but we should also be talking about um democrats who are are just like regular people in our community people who vote democratic right and might consider themselves to be um, democratic liberal or progressive right and so even in democratic communities i am seeing more and more people who are giving up on masking and um, that is that's a real challenge right it, it's not that hard to throw on a mask when you run into the grocery store um, it's not it's not that hard when you are, uh, you know, going to parent teacher conferences at your kid's school to put on a mask or. Um, and so I think we need to think about responsibility of our elected officials. Absolutely. Um, but in places like Wisconsin, where it's hard, um, a politically challenging situation and um, it, it may feel um, almost impossible that the legislature would step up and do anything, we also need to be thinking about our own personal actions and what we can be doing as a community. What occurs to me right away is, look, what President Biden's trying to do on an employment, a mandate for employers is very valuable and has already been very effective. So the conservatives are trying to block it in court. Get the state, but at the state level, what about mask mandates? What about clear guidance that there need to be mask mandates? What about uh, mandates here for employers, right? Because the fact that it's held up in federal court, I'm not sure that means that it's kicked in, say, for public employees in Wisconsin for large employers, just for example. And I'm concerned, at least with Governor Evers, as political advisors are telling him not to. I actually think for incumbents how bad the pandemic is. Uh, in November of 2022 is going to have a very big influence in their election, whether they avoided public safety measures or not. So I think some of the political advisors uh, to Democrats are being penny wise and pound foolish about the effect, the drag that uh, this is going to have on, uh, on President Biden and incumbents like uh, Governor Evers. But I know we're coming to a break and I want to get after the, on the other side uh, to the, the, the partisan issue in the pandemic. So you are listening to Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, this is Robert Craig, the director of Fifth National Wisconsin, with Claire Zautke, the Healthcare for All director of Fifth National Wisconsin. Our usual host, Matt Brusky, is under the weather today, but uh, I'm sure we'll be back next week. Uh, we've been talking about the ramp up in the first segment of, of the COVID pandemic in Wisconsin and the lack of action up to the scale of the problem. Um, and we've also talked about Wisconsin reaching its limit as far as its capacity in, in intensive care units. So I want to even get broader because there's a lot of news, Claire, recently this week and, and quite recently about the partisan nature of this pandemic. And that's 
partly what's driving the ongoing pandemic, the fact that it's become a matter of partisanship and, uh, and sides and which side you're on in, in terms of political party. And we haven't had this in a long time. People don't realize how long we've been doing vaccine mandates. They were upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in the early 1900s, one of the first major decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in its early existence. Uh, they go back even further than that. In fact, it's hard, I've heard some, uh, some, some historians try to talk about it, to find in the last couple hundred years a, a pandemic response in the United States, you know, a public health outbreak that, that divided on partisan lines where one party would take the measures and the other wouldn't. You almost have to go back, actually, uh, to the Puritans and the, the early uh, 1700s in Boston, where they had a smallpox um, outbreak. And there were a lot of beliefs people had about, you know, vaccinations were very new and scary at that point, right? They weren't as established as now. And of course, the science wasn't as good. Science was in its infancy. But Cotton Mather, the clerical leader, and it was almost like a near theocracy at that point, Puritan rule in, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, believed in vaccinations and used his authority uh, to, to vaccinate people and to turn the tide. So in a way, we have a modern Republican Party that is not as visionary as Cotton Mather's was in the 1720s. But Claire, you've been looking, a lot of us have been hearing national headlines about a, the partisanship of who is getting COVID, who is unvaccinated, and who is dying. So can you share with the audience some of the rather shocking numbers that have been coming out concerning not only the partisan nature of what the positions of the parties are and the disinformation, the anti-vaxxing on the Republican side, but the actual outcomes as to who is really getting sick and dying. Yeah, absolutely. Let's start with the uh, vaccination piece and then we can talk outcomes. Uh, so the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, which is uh, I've referenced them many times, just an incredibly reputable, nonpartisan uh, policy research institution with a particular focus on health and healthcare issues, uh, did some data analysis in, back in October and put out some information about uh, you know, who is vaccinated and who is not vaccinated and, and what can we learn from the data uh, on this point. And what they found is that, at least as of October, 59% uh, of the unvaccinated in the United States are Republicans. 64% of them are white. And by contrast, only 14% and 16% respectively of the unvaccinated are um, Black and Hispanic. And that folks who are not vaccinated tend to lean towards COVID denialism. So thinking that it's really not that big of a deal and um, have listed as at least one piece of COVID misinformation as part of the reason why they're choosing to not get vaccinated, um, as well as being unvaccinated as an expression of their personal freedom, supposedly, right? And so, so that last bit, you know, we knew because that's always been part of the narrative. But I think it's helpful to have a little bit of data to back up, um, to back up this idea that we have, right? That, um, that folks who are 
unvaccinated, um, that their decisions are often informed by, like I said, this idea of, of, of what freedom is that we can have an argument about. And we have talked a lot about on this podcast, um, but, but also about COVID denialism and COVID misinformation and that, um, reaching out to folks, the study also found, um, and talking to them about persuasion and information is not necessarily as moving that, uh, for them to, or motivating for them to get vaccinated as it is seeing, um, family members and friends and neighbors get sick, go to the hospital, die, see, and seeing local news coverage about what's happening in local hospitals. And then secondarily to your point, Robert, um, the study found that employer mandates are actually also really effective, which you knew, that's why you said it. Um, but that is also an effective way to influence folks' decisions to get vaccinated. So that's what that, that's what that uh, study said. And I wanna see if you have a reaction to that before we talk about um, partisan disparities and outcomes. Well, the scientists were being denied by the anti-vax movement and opportunistic right-wing media personalities and politicians, which is unfortunately most of them, um, that we know that the science says that you're much more likely to get COVID, you're much more likely to get sick, and you're much more likely to die or be have serious repercussions if you're not vaccinated. And since so it, it turns out that they're um, activities on the on the on the right against COVID, COVID denial, um, uh, you know, basic uh, skepticism of public health measures and the vaccine um, is being very effective. You pointed out that far fewer are being vaccinated. Well, this is validating the science because Claire, there are good numbers on who's actually dying and where they're dying uh, that that show that. The facts are the facts. The science is the science. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, NPR, National Public Radio, put out a study that's this week that has been going around social media. So maybe folks have already seen it. Uh, and the headline is that pro-Trump counties now have far higher COVID death rate and misinformation is to blame. And so their their analysis of um, all the data points about uh, where comparing where folks are vaccinated or rates of vaccination in counties and um, deaths from COVID in counties. And um, if those counties went for Biden or Trump or were pretty evenly split, found that um, counties that went for Donald Trump have, again, much lower vaccination rates and much, much higher um, death rates. It's it's almost, I think, three times. I'll have to go back and look at it to, to make sure. But yeah, I'm pretty confident. Robert's giving me the thumbs up. Yeah, that it was um, counties that went heavily for Donald Trump are three times as likely to have high COVID death rates or rates that are three times as high as counties that went heavily for, for Biden. Um, and that is uh, that is not surprising, given the vaccination data that we just shared and that the fact that vaccination is the single most effective way that we protect ourselves against death from COVID. Um, so uh, I, I hope that folks um, in these counties, as they see more and more folks around themselves get sick and go to the hospital, can be can be moved to question the misinformation that has been shared with them and the seeds of distrust in science that were sowed by Donald Trump to act in their and their family's self-interest, best interest by getting vaccinated. 
So some have been saying, some people thought it was hyperbole that the Republican Party, as it's been taken over by Donald Trump, is a death cult. This is a death cult. You want your grandparents, your, your uncles and aunts, other members of your family to get sick from and potentially die from a deadly disease? Well, it's going to happen much more to people who support Donald Trump and the current Republican Party. And there's an ethical dilemma here, Claire. I'll just say that people tend to follow their side. And so as hard as it is to look askance at people who are, you know, violating public health orders, people we know in our networks who refuse to get vaccinated, I think a lot more ethical responsibility falls on the people who are knowingly lying to them and risking their lives. And we, it's like there's no norms left. We talk about Trump violating norms. Uh, and I'm talking, include conservative religious leaders. Where is the Cotton Mathers of the modern time saying, please get vaccinated? What, what happens is we've had a series of, you know, right-wing talk show hosts at the local level die, and then their family come out and urge their audiences to get vaccinated. But they were vaccine-denying the whole time when they were on the air. Uh, I just, it, it, it's shockingly unethical, and it goes beyond COVID. It goes to a party that believes, a leadership that believes that anything goes to grab power, even, even promoting and undermining a response to a pandemic. Yes, I totally agree. And the, the in fact, this NPR article says that the most widely believed false statement, the, the, the single biggest piece of, of COVID misinformation that, that uh, was most widely believed amongst um, the unvaccinated folks that they surveyed, is that, quote, the government is exaggerating the number of COVID-19 deaths. That is... That is a huge, huge problem. And they have their own media, so they can just watch Tucker Carlson. Exactly. Uh, who has his own motives. So we're going to transition in the next segment. This is going to be thematically uh, very continuous, though it will not be COVID. Uh, this same party and the same movement is a now a threat to democracy, to the, our whole experiment in self-rule in the United States. So we'll talk about that next on Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back, everyone, to Battleground Wisconsin. This is Robert Craig, joined by Claire Zalke and Matt Brusky. Our usual host is under the weather today, so we are going it alone. Hopefully he'll approve of the product here. So we had talked about the first pandemic in, 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 dec in, in centuries in the United States that was partisan. And, that, and how that is driving the pandemic further and risking all of us, because everyone is ready for this pandemic to be under control and return to normal life. And quite frankly, a new kind of adolescent version of freedom that says live free or die, one of the slogans of the Revolutionary War, wasn't about living under the yoke of a king in a parliament, faraway parliament without any representation, that it's about Wearing a cloth mask for 20 minutes, you go to the grocery store. I don't think that's what the framers were talking about. But the framers were not also talking about self-rule, the first large-scale republic. And, and Claire, it just seems to get worse and worse as far as the, uh, the threat to democracy. We've seen it here in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, the New York Times report a couple of weeks ago, was at the cutting edge of this. But there's a lot of new uh, analysis and reportage coming out this week. There's been a special focus this week 
on a very long piece in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman, but it's not the only piece. It's a special issue of The Atlantic on the threat to democracy. But Barton Gelman's is the uh, cover story. And his thesis, briefly, I cannot do justice. This is, uh, this is a very long article and very rich in detail and in narrative. Um, his basic argument is that those who think that, um, that, it, that the threat is passed because Trump isn't president and that it was a clown show coup, things like the ridiculous Trump legal team and some of the other things that ha- circus-like things that happened uh, when Trump tried to tried to overthrow the election. And the you know, let's face it, the capital insurrection was horrible, but it wasn't exactly you know the the best the best uh, plotted military violent takeover of a country, right? It was random and haphazard in a lot of ways. But what Gelman's thesis says is that that was practice. And they are, with the way they're taking over the election machinery and with, in, in the key battleground states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, and uh, Nevada, uh, that he is much better positioned to seal the election in 2024. And it lays out the case for that in a very compelling way. And Wisconsin is a big part of that case. And Wisconsin, uh, there, there is a push, and Ron Johnson is is advocating it, and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to simply take over the election machinery of the state away from the Wisconsin Election Commission, and to be in a position to name the electors. And we have a Supreme Court now, a U.S. Supreme Court, that might well validate that. So, and there are constitutional reasons we can get into or not, depending on how the conversation goes, Claire. But like the COVID uh, pandemic. And this is uh, Barton Gelman's, one of his major points. It's not like Democrats are acting that way. They're not acting up to the scale of the threat. And uh, Joe Biden has talked about it being a threat from time to time, but he's not acted like it. He's having a democracy forum on on promoting democracy worldwide, the threat to democracy. Uh, But he's done that sort of thing. But where's the action to actually secure the vote? Um, and to make sure the election can, elections just can't be gerrymandered to death and stolen uh, by, the, by a, a Republican Party that will apparently stop at nothing to gain power, including ending, uh, you know, uh, democratic rule in this country. And in fact, I'll just tell you, Claire, I don't know if you've heard about this, but for the big democracy summit, international democracy summit uh, today and t- Thursday and Friday, in uh, D.C., it started Wednesday, actually, but uh, it's it, it, yeah, but um, there some folks have some activists have projected onto the wall of a major museum like a message. It's like it's big and can be read. It's on Pennsylvania Avenue. And it says, uh, President Biden, what are you doing to actually save democracy? I may be botching it, something along those lines. So, Claire, do you feel like at the state level, at the national level, that that Barton Gellman has a point that there is a very effective conspiracy underway uh, to, to, to take over the whole mechanisms of who, of who decides who wins elections and also things with gerrymandering. It makes it possible for the other side to ever win an election. And that our side, broadly speaking, is maybe talking about it to some degree, but we're not acting up to the scale of the threat, just like we're not on COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, anybody who is in Wisconsin and has been following the podcast and has been following the news 
knows that what you're talking about has been playing out for the past year in our state, right? I mean, look at the Gableman investigation, the fact that the fact that our legislature is not just entertaining, but that leaders of it are still actively pushing this big lie, this conspiracy theory that something went wrong on the November 3rd, 2020 election. A year later, more than 13 months later, is clear evidence of what you talked about and what is laid out in this Atlantic article, right? That there is a concerted effort from people like Trump's uh, supporters and strategists to try to undermine the our democracy, to make people on the ground, voters, question the democracy and the um, the the institutions or um, mechanisms that we use to to vote and to carry out democracy, right? Um, and that it's not it's not just limited to campaign season anymore. It's it's constant. We we've, we've been living with this uh, this sham investigation that's been costing us public dollars and taking a lot of attention away from. Uh, real issues that we could be working on again for the past for the past year, and if it's happening in Wisconsin, I'm sure it's happening other places as well. So yeah, I I'm not surprised at all that this is part of a national trend, and I and I am oh, glad that it's getting covered. It is it's being covered, but the the question is whether our side is acting up to the scale of threat. As with COVID, yes, it's happening in Michigan, it's happening in Georgia, it's happening in Arizona, and they have uh, they've seized the election machinery. Uh, they just have. And in Wisconsin, they're far advanced in doing so as well. And in fact, we have the risk of, we have a, a Racine County Sheriff uh, uh, referring five of the six members of the Wisconsin Election Commission, a balanced commission with three public, three Democrats, for prosecution for felonies uh, for based on bogus, trumped-up the 2020 election was stolen kind of charges. And it's just stunning that he's being allowed to get away with that. Where is the uh, state attorney general investigation or the, or the Racine DA investigation into the misuse of office by the Racine County Sheriff? Now, I'll give that as an example because there's so many elements to it. How can an elected sheriff be allowed to use the, his official office his law enforcement office and the resources of that office and to stand at press, at press conferences with all with his uniform on and all of the regalia of I am a respected law enforcement officer and essentially spin a partisan conspiracy and give credence to it, to the lie by creating headlines that suggest that felonies were committed by Wisconsin election commissioners, including two of the three Republicans. The funny thing is the third Republican voted for the changes that it made it possible for nursing home workers to vote. They wouldn't be able to vote in the pandemic if they hadn't done it. And we and administrative agencies are expected to adjust to circumstance because laws are very general. The legislature cannot predict every scenario like a COVID-19 pandemic when they write a law. So he is perpetuating the lie with his office, maybe worse because um, he may well want to get a DA. There's pressure on DAs across state to actually file charges. And if they don't, he is using his office to do this. And that is a misconduct in office. That is a class one felony in, the United, in, in Wisconsin. Where is the investigation by the state attorney general or by the local district attorney in Racine? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I think the example that you laid out is is just the clearest, clearest example um, of, um, of I guess, like harmful outrage that makes that makes no sense. Right. Um, of, of taking something that is totally normal and is a normal voting process, which is using um is using election officials to um, help people who are homebound cast their votes. And, 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 and let's be clear, like folks who are often likely to vote Republican too, right? I mean, um, and, and using that and twisting it to be an example of a failure of democracy when in fact it is um, an example of democracy working well. Um, is really is really harmful. So I don't have I don't have anything more to add than what you laid out because yeah, your no, analysis was great. Yeah. And here here's the thing, Claire. Right. So okay, they changed the rules so that you can so nursing home workers can vote. What happened was special uh, registration deputies under the law, the ones that go in and help the nursing home workers vote, they weren't allowed in nursing homes because of the pandemic because it would have been a danger to nursing home residents, and so they mailed them in to the nursing homes, the absentee ballot, so that the staff could enable their voting. That is, it, it was so commonplace, there was no complaint from the Republican Party. The Trump side filed lawsuit after lawsuit in 2020. Not a single public complaint, not a single lawsuit, nothing. The only thing that changed between then and now is the politics. That is, Donald Trump is insisting, as a matter of loyalty, that you take these kind of actions. That is the only thing that changed the fact that if, the, if there was any question about this, believe you me, they would have filed lawsuits and would have complained publicly in 2020. So that puts the lie to the whole thing. And to have a law enforcement officer using his office to advance this and to use his formal powers to refer people for prosecution. I'm sorry, that's down the road to fascism. But we have to take a break. And uh, we're going to talk about another element of uh, coercion and the end of freedom. That is the threat to women's basic rights to control their own bodies. Well, we'll be right back on Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We've kind of had a pre-fascism episode Uh, this week. We've talked about the partisan nature of the pandemic and the rising death rates and the differential death rates that living in a red Trump county makes you much more likely to die. Uh, We talked about, and the sabotage by Republicans is extending this pandemic into a threat to everyone. We talked in the next couple segments about the overall threat to democracy, for which there's a lot of talk and a lot of new evidence that the coup is ongoing and is in fact going to be far more effective in the future if Democrats don't take action to check it. Uh, we didn't even mention Claire, but I think people know this, that when is the Senate going to take action on the voting, on, on the, uh, on the voting rights reforms that would protect, secure the vote in many ways. Uh, it still hasn't happened uh, because of the uh, Jim Crow era filibuster, but we have another major threat. It's almost like you can't focus on all the threats, but, they're all part one of, uh, of a piece. And we all know that the U.S. Supreme Court that's been packed by conservatives, again, the modern problem party will do anything to gain control. A Supreme Court that has a strong right-wing majority in an era where the Democrats have not lost the popular vote in the last 30 years, except in 2004. Yet we have a very partisan right-wing U.S. Supreme Court and nothing's changed on abortion, on the facts. 
All that's changed is the composition of the Supreme Court, which shows that why do you give people tenure on a, on a Supreme Court to be independent jurists if they're just going to act like members of Congress and vote based on their ideology? And so this has shocked everyone. And Claire, Wisconsin's one of the states with quote-unquote trigger laws where if this happens next spring is when it's predicted that they'll take their action. The oral arguments look really bad. Wisconsin, it will be, a, it will be illegal and a crime um, in, almost, in, in almost every instance. So can you talk a little bit about this, just the nature of the threat, Claire, and then what can be, and then we can get to what can be done with it, which is harder, but let's first understand the scale of what would happen just here in Wisconsin if the Supreme Court does what it appears hellbound to do. Yeah, uh, this has been really scary for a lot of folks in our community for um, for for women who can have children, uh, not you know non-binary and trans folks who can who can have children. Uh, this has been really scary, um, and the kind of thing that uh, at least folks I can speak for myself of my generation growing up thought was a settled issue and would never be something that we would seriously have to think about. Um, and, and the fact that we're here in this moment where there is a possibility that the right to receive an abortionist health care could uh, be, be taken away within the next six months is really scary. Um, so Wisconsin is one of the few states uh, left in this country that has never repealed our uh, criminal law um, about abortion from the books. So it, it's still on the books. It's just been rendered unconstitutional and unenforceable by Roe v. Wade and then the follow-up case, uh, the Casey case. So Wisconsin's law says that any person who intentionally destroys, is the word of the law, the life of an unborn child, so um, doctor or um, the, the mother, the person carrying the fetus, is guilty of a class H felony, which in Wisconsin can carry a prison term of up to six years um, and a fine of up to $10,000. And there is not um, an exception for um, things like um, having it be in the case of rape or incest. Um, and uh, I, I have I've seen one thing that seemed like maybe there might be an exception for um, what is necessary to save the life of the person carrying the fetus, but um, I... I don't want to be quoted on that because it's, it's possible that that is old information or bad information. Um, but but regardless, really what's important here is the right for um, any person who is pregnant to be able to decide uh, for themselves and for their own family if they want to continue with the pregnancy or not, right? Um, it should be, uh, we shouldn't have to um, point to extreme cases like cases of rape or incest to say like this is the law this is why the law is bad it, it doesn't contain these exceptions that's what makes it particularly bad um, but it, it's it's really it's really bad um, that Wisconsin has this criminal law on the books um, that takes away um, people's ability their right 
to make decisions for themselves and their own bodies? Uh, I'll tell you my take on what to do. Obviously, how bad this is, is obvious to anyone on the right side, even if people have personal qualms about abortion, that's their right to impose what amounts to religious doctrine and everyone else and to take away what has been established constitutional freedom for 50 years. That's stunning. And to do it just because of the packing of the U.S. Supreme Court is stunning. But they are going to do what they're going to do. Right. Unfortunately, we've allowed them to take this control of the U.S. Supreme Court. We, as in the broader whole Big Tent Democrat coalition, not progressives per se. Um, but I think what has to happen here and what some pundits think can happen is this needs to be electoralized. And there's certainly reason to believe that the Republicans may well be the dog that caught the car and that they've created a first tier issue for, for winning elections for Democrats. Uh, because people are going to realize our side has not realized the threat fully. They have a small minority that's highly mobilized and votes on the issue. If people start start voting on this issue, the numbers are on our side. It's a question of whether they will throw people out, state legislators, uh, potential candidates for governor, U.S. senators like Ron Johnson, who are for taking away a fundamental constitutional right that women won over half a century ago. Uh, Claire, do you agree that probably, uh, again, we're going to have more information, but it's looking like the ballot box is the only redress right now and making this a, a, a dominant election issue and holding them accountable for what they're, they're doing? Yes, I do agree. Um, and my hope is that this threat, whether or not it materializes, will be a motivating factor uh, for voters, especially for uh, women, to um, to be engaged in the 2022 election cycle at both the state and federal level, um, because if if Democrats, if we are, I shouldn't say we, right, because maybe not everybody this podcast identifies as a Democrat, right? Um, but if we as progressives um, are not successful in this midterm election at the federal level and this uh, gubernatorial election at the state level, um, it is going to be much, much, much harder to protect the right to choice and um, the the right for women to have abortions if they want to, um, because the laws be could become even more restrictive, um, and and then we're set back even even farther, right? And so uh, I I hope that this is a motivating factor for for folks to be um, engaged in the election. Yeah, and we need to frame up that issue for them so they understand who's who's on what side and what the consequences are of that mm. of the other position. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's on us, but it's on people also to step up. But we got to, we got to, and Governor Evers needs to run clearly on this. He can't listen to the consultants that tell him that it's a, it's a controversial issue. So he should stay clear. I'm sorry. This is one of the best reasons to elect Governor Evers. Uh, yeah, you know, he, he did, he did make a great, a fair amount of hay about the fact that he vetoed a bunch of abortion restrictions. I said a bunch of, it was like five abortion yeah. restriction bills mm -hmm. um, earlier this month. So, so I, I hope he continues to, to lead publicly on this, on this issue and, and not run Don't from he, it as we head into the election. The MO of moderate 
Democrat consultants is to avoid all controversial issues, but people vote on the controversial issue. So I think that that's uh, misguided. That's my view. But we only have a minute and a half left. I, I think it, it, it would be remiss on our part not to recognize the retirement of John Erpenbach, who's been a fixture uh, in the state legislature the last two years, and I've known him the whole time. Um, there, we, we can't do justice to his whole legacy, but also this also opens up a, a progressive seat, so it's an opportunity as well. But my take is, my nominations for his biggest legacies are, look, he was the lead sponsor of Healthy Wisconsin in 2007, and folks forget this was the only fully funded Medicare for All plan at the state level to ever pass any house of, the, of a state legislature. And of course, it's never happened in Congress either. And that was a major accomplishment. The other single-payer bills out there are not funded, and therefore, they're not full legislation. And so that held up the state budget for four months. So that was it. That, that was it. That we need to get back to that progressivism, but you can't take that away from Senator Erpenbach. And I think his tireless efforts the last decade to work across the aisle with Republicans, and I think, unfortunately, despite his efforts, he's proven case that there is no bipartisanship with them. Claire, do you have any thoughts either on his legacy or on where we go from here, because folks do retire and open up seats. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And I just hope that we have some other strong members of the state Senate who step up to fill his shoes as a leader on health and health care issues in the Senate, because they're big shoes to fill. But I'm, I'm excited to for the ability to work with more folks on, on these important issues. Thank you very much, everyone. We hope our host, Matt Brusky, is back next week. Uh, But thank you for listening to Battleground Wisconsin. And everyone, please be safe. The pandemic is ramping up again, uh, and we're going into the holiday season. It's only the beginning of winter.